Welcome to the long-awaited return of the Ideas Matter podcast. We've gotten requests for great deals of money to come back and do an episode. We've received death threats. We've received various strange messages from intelligence operatives asking us about our whereabouts, and we thought it was time to come back out of the woodwork and bless you with another episode. That's exactly right. Actually, I had this idea that I was going to tell you about like before we started recording, but I'll just mention it now. We should just like randomly like make up an ad for a company, read it out, and then send them an invoice like after the fact. (laughs) Charge them for us reading ads for them. (laughs) It sounds like a good way to monetize the podcast. Um, But like full disclosure, guys, um, I just finished my master's degree and we were meant to be doing an episode on Spinoza. Uh, Alex rather impressively read the entire Ethics by Spinoza. I didn't think I could do it. Yeah, it was quite impressive actually because I tried to read it. Um, but after finishing my thesis, I just could not bring myself to pick up another book about philosophy. So rather than wait another uh, six weeks for an episode when we've already waited so long, we decided to cover uh, the, my thesis that I just completed for my master's research, which is about uh, the relationship between Confucianism, uh, liberalism, and the idea of freedom in political philosophy. So we're going to be going over that today in some shameless self-promotion. Yeah, it, it, it is actually like a very interesting thesis. I've, I've never read anything about Confucianism before. You know, given the rising place of China in the world today and the Chinese challenge to kind of liberal uh, world order politics... Uh, looking at things from a Confucian perspective is very important and uh, not something that many of us have done before. So, Louis, what kind of prompted you to Mm. have a look at Confucianism? Yeah, what were my motivations, I suppose? Yeah. It's so disconcerting to see someone else like having taken notes on something I've I've written. It's (laughs) quite quite a weird thing. Um, The motivation probably was... I did an undergraduate thesis looking at China's rise from a sort of strategic military perspective. And as I was writing that thesis, it really struck me just how much the theoretical frameworks used for analysing China were sort of explicitly developed in reference to, like, the Western context. So Mm -hmm. I'll give one really obvious example, like offensive realism, um, which is associated with John Mearsheimer, who's become fairly notorious lately. So he has a really, it's a really good book where he lays out his, you know, theory of international relations, but in the middle of the book where he gives the examples for what supports his theory, it's literally entirely drawn from European warfare. And then at the end of the book, he has a China call, a chapter called, sorry, Can China Rise Peacefully? Which I thought was weird because he had not mentioned China historically at all throughout the, throughout the whole book. So I thought, how can he predict what China's going to do if he hasn't even studied China's history, he hasn't studied China's philosophy. So that got me more thinking about like analysing China on its own terms. And I was aware vaguely that in China at the moment there's a bit of a, I guess you'd call it a resurgence of Confucianism, uh, which is interesting because after the Communist Party took over, and particularly during the Cultural Revolution, Confucius was shunned. Uh, he was He wasn't outlawed, but it was kind of frowned upon. It was sort of viewed as... Um, a relic of China's feudal past and there was a belief that these ideas were outdated and they were partly responsible for why China had been um, so comprehensively outclassed by Westerners, that 
in some sense their ideas were futile and backwards and they needed to modernise. So Chairman Mao in particular uh, launched a criticised Confucius, criticised Lin Bao campaign and encouraged people to criticise Confucian ideas. Um, so in that context, it's interesting that recently there's been a revival of Confucianism. I mean, in Australia, we've heard a lot about the Confucius Institutes. Uh, in China, they're promoting classical studies again. Um, parents are increasingly enrolling their students in Confucian Sunday schools. And so I wanted to know, well, why, why is this going on? I mean, on the one level, it's probably just a little bit cynical, right? Like governments, nationalist governments love to do this sort of thing. Um, but beneath everything, there's a little, there's a grain of truth. So I started looking into, well, if the liberal international order is being challenged by a rising China, they're going to need to come up with some ideas to put in its place. And so are they looking at Confucianism as sort of being a way to challenge the dominance of Western liberalism? And the final point I'd make in terms of my motivation was it really dovetailed with my own thinking at the time, the relationship between Marxism and liberalism. And I sort of had this realisation that Marxism is really kind of just liberalism boiled down to its like highest ideal. A lot of the principles of liberalism, you just find them in Marxism kind of like at a higher level. So individuals having the free time to do whatever they please, the state not having much of a vision of, of, of what the good life is. And when I realised that Marxism and liberalism really conceive of freedom in the same sort of way, I thought, well, what does that mean for China, a notionally communist country, a notionally Marxist country, but now is reviving Confucianism? What might Confucianism have to say about freedom? Um, so then I came up with the question, which, which guides the thesis, uh, is a Confucian theory of freedom possible? And if it is possible, um, is it more desirable than Western alternatives? And so that was my research question. Very interesting. There's... um. There's quite a bit to dig into here, um, but you, I feel like the best way to go into this is, uh, like you mentioned, dovetailed with your interest in Marxism and liberalism, and we've had a couple pods on those topics, liberalism, the philosophical origins of liberalism, and having a look at Marxism too, and communitarianism. Um, so why don't we start off with a brief little reminder of what liberalism is what is liberal political philosophy? Mm, mm. Yeah, that's that's probably a good place to start, yeah. Um, so I had a chapter, well, chapter two is critiquing Western theories of freedom, but really chapter three is sort of also that as well, but in more detail, because chapter three is about how liberalism and Confucianism conceive of the self. And so my main point there was that in liberalism, humans are conceived as individual selves. Um, everyone exists as a kind of individual entity that then has relationships with other people. But these relationships are always, I guess, accidental or auxiliary to your real identity. So, you know, I might have, I've got friends, I've got family relations, these things might be good, they might be bad, but they're not actually part of who I am. They're sort of somewhat external to me. So liberalism views people first and foremost as individuals. So um, this is like our episode we had on Descartes, yep, like the yep. Cartesian self, which is exists prior to anything outside of it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I did mention, uh, from memory, I think, mentioned Descartes. Yeah, you did. Briefly in that chapter is where some of this comes from. Um, so it was important to include that because that sort of idea of the self is not 
well, some might argue that there is a, a view of individualism in Confucianism. I don't, um, but at least on my reading, that it's not it's not individualistic at all. And so that's why I included that. But that's basically what liberalism is. So if you take that view of the self and go, okay, well, if we're starting from there, how do we like put this into political practice? Politics just becomes about how can you create the biggest space for individuals to do whatever they want as long as they're not harming other people. And, you know, we see that today, you know, like in arguments for, I guess, legalising drugs. You know, if, if they're not harming anyone else, the people do whatever they want. Um marriage equality, uh, all these sort of things, all these really good things, but they have their basis in a sort of rationale that is individuals should be able to do whatever they want, provided they're not directly harming others. I guess that is the core tenet of liberalism, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And with liberalism, like you mentioned, there's uh, the idea as long as you're not harming anyone else, you know, it's it's up to you. And that that's kind of an idea of freedom. So there's a notion of uh, freedom that's central to liberalism. So how how might we kind of conceptualise this freedom? I, I know that in your thesis you mentioned three different kinds, mm. negative uh, freedom or negative liberty, mm. uh, republican liberty and positive liberty. Would you mind taking us through those? Yeah, that's a great segue because everything I just said about liberalism and sort of what I said there about people being able to do whatever they want as long as they're not directly harming others, you're right. And this is often called negative liberty. Um, that's a term that was coined by Isaiah Berlin, a political theorist in the 20th century. But negative liberty is basically that. It views freedom. You're free insofar as no one else or no external force interferes with your life plan. So I guess the quote that most sums up that view of freedom is by John Stuart Mill. and He said, the only freedom which deserves the name is the freedom of choosing our own good in our own way. So I come up with my own view of how I want to live my life and provided that no one else or the state, etc., actively stands in my way from stopping me doing that, then I'm free. So it's negative in the sense it's non-interference. It's negative freedom or negative liberty. Um, And then there's positive liberty, which you could argue is just as much a part of the liberal tradition as negative liberty, although it's not as common in Western, particularly uh, Anglo-American democracies. Positive liberty is... Yes, we want negative liberty, but that's not sufficient. It's not enough. It's necessary, but not sufficient, to use the analytical terminology. Um, you're only free if, if your actions that you desire are rational. And so the example I give in the thesis, um, which I would hope is not controversial, is like an anti-vaxxer. And I picked that example because we've heard a lot about freedom in relation to vaccine mandates, etc. in the West. And... Not getting vaccinated is a form of freedom, if that's your choice. And it's a good example of negative freedom, because these people don't want some external force telling them what to do. But a proponent of positive freedom will say, no, you're not really free, because you're making that decision on the basis of false information. So you're not free if you're making decisions and have ideas and beliefs that are in some sense false or wrong. And obviously, you can see how this is controversial, because who's to say, you know, what is and isn't objective. Um, In something like this, it can get controversial pretty quickly, but it goes right back to Plato's idea of the cave and people looking at shadows on the wall 
They might think they're free because that's all they know, but really when they escape the cave and they see things as they really are, they realise, oh, well, we were just staring at shadows on a wall. We weren't actually free. So positive freedom is making sure what you do is rational and it's also about creating the environment for people to realise their possibilities. So it's, it's often associated with socialism and communism because it's this idea of, well, we can't just leave people alone. The state needs to provide health care, needs to provide education, housing, etc. because it's not enough to say, well, you're free to do whatever you want. You need the capability to express that freedom. And so positive freedom also emphasises that as well. Actually, do you have the capacity to be free? Um, so that's positive and negative liberty. And just briefly on Republican liberty, because it's not as common, especially in Australia, um, is this idea of non-denomination, which I find quite interesting. So I might not interfere with someone, but if I have the power to interfere with them, it, even if I don't choose to exercise it, then I dominate them in a certain sense. Um, and so a good example is given of like maybe a husband and a wife and they live in a society where women have no rights and this husband could, if he wanted to, like dominate his wife. Uh, but he just happens to be an enlightened person. So he treats his wife very well, gives her personal freedom. But because they live in a society where if he wanted to, he could interfere with her life, she's not really free according to the Republican definition of freedom because her freedom is arbitrary. It depends upon his whim. Um, so you see this manifested, I guess, politically and really trying to constrain the power of the state. And it's a very prevalent idea in America and it sort of underpins like their Bill of Rights. It's like, no, it's not enough that the state doesn't do these things. The state shouldn't be able to do them even if it wanted, um, which I think is an, an interesting an interesting argument and, like as I think I mentioned in the thesis, a slightly more sophisticated critique of things like vaccine mandates because some of the criticisms that were, I thought, actually had some merit were about the exercise of government power and a lack of consultation with, like, citizens. And that's the, that's the domain of Republican liberty. Mm-hmm. And so it, I, th- I think it's just, uh, as a caveat, Republican in the sense of, like, a republic, not the yeah. American Republican Party. No, good point, yeah. Not, um, not, not capital R Republican, small, small R Republican. Yeah, and also there's a little bit, uh, that you wrote on Marx uh, and his relation to liberalism and liberal freedom. Uh, you, you alluded to this uh, in your kind of introduction to explaining the thesis, but could you just elaborate a little further on Marx and uh, liberal freedom? Yeah, so um, I think what I'm talking about there is Marx's economic and philosophical manuscripts, which we have an episode on. Please refer to that. Yeah, please go back and listen to that. Um, but yeah, that's really what I meant when I said at the start that like Marx's idea of freedom was didn't really escape the liberal tradition. Uh, it was still very much like bedded within it. It was just trying to make it as good as it could be and get rid of some of the more uh, bourgeois elements of, of liberalism. Um, but if you if you were to think like what is Marx's ideal society, it is kind of really just what John Stuart Mill said, like everyone pursuing their own good in their own way. I mean, in communism, the state is supposed to wither away and so there wouldn't be a state that's propagating like a form of the good life that's desirable. There wouldn't be this sort of overarching capital M morality. It would ultimately just be down to individuals. Um, yeah, does that, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Um, so 
Why don't we move on to what is wrong with the liberal conception of freedom and give us a segue into Confucianism? Yeah, so how I jump from one to the other is through this idea of the self. So I've mentioned that liberalism like views people as individuals. And I think it might be the biggest or the second biggest chapter in the thesis is this ontology of the self chapter, where I argue that people are not individuals. I think I like use quite strong language, which my advisor repeatedly tried to get me to water down, but <laughs> I refused. I think I said it's a fiction that people are individuals. Um, and what I mean by that is that you can't really talk about anyone in the abstract. You know, the second you're asked to define someone, you start doing it in reference to things around them, uh, like their job, what they're interested in, who their family members are, who their friends are. So what I'm trying to get at is this idea that, like, our identity is inextricably bound up with our relationships to other people. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not like we exist prior to our relationships. No, we are we are not just informed by them, we're constituted by them. And I don't really think it takes, like much argument to get most people to see how true this is. Um, you just think about like how much your personality is informed by your upbringing, for example, um, how your views and beliefs are informed by your, like the environment and the context you were brought up in, you know, people, very few people like actually sit back and critically evaluate their entire life and try and like transcend their upbringing and come to this like fresh understanding of what they believe. Most people are, really just the product of their environment or well, everyone is the product of their environment. Um, it's just a question of how aware you are of that. So this liberal idea that everyone is sort of like self-made, I just, is just absurd to me. It, does, it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense. Um, so that, yeah, there's these, there's these really interesting psychological studies which show that um, people's character traits and personality traits which we might think to be good windows into who they actually are, quote-unquote, are actually not stable at all and they're really highly malleable. And so there was one really interesting study where uh, they paid, some psychologists paid an actor um, to pretend to be in pain in an alleyway and to call out for help. And then they basically recorded people walking past the stranger to see if they would stop and assist the stranger. And what they found was the single biggest predictor of whether people actually stopped to help this person who was audibly like in pain and wanted help was not whether this person identified as being religious, uh, was not whether they like identified as having any ethical beliefs or commitments. The single biggest predictor of whether they would stop and help someone in pain was simply were they in a hurry. And so this idea that you might have like a stable character trait that persists across all scenarios of your life is very, very shaky. And the, the other famous example is the Stanford prison experiment where they take normal people, they put them in a position of power and very quickly um, they become like quite despotic and like very authoritarian. So the idea is here that like who you are insofar as that's manifested in what you do, which is a key tenet of Confucianism, you just are what you do. It's very, very context-dependent. So there is no stable sense of self. And so you move from liberalism being focused on individual morality uh, to Confucianism with so how do we create good environments? How do we create good societies? How do we create good relationships? Because how we act is really just a product of, of that. Mm. So the basic kind of 
unit for conceptualizing society moves from the individual to wider groups. Precisely. Um, precisely. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. From the individual to the family, I guess, would be the most common usage there because Confucianism has a huge emphasis on filial piety and the family. Um, obviously, before the modern state, that would, that would have made a lot of sense as well. But yeah, from the individual to one social group. Mm-hmm. And in Confucianism, so there, there is no stable sense of self that exists outside relations. Like people, as you said, people are their relations or they are their roles. Mm. You know, any sense of identity is dynamic, really. You are as you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does he say about uh, the idea of like a, a meaning of life in Confucianism? Yeah, so the meaning of life... Uh, yeah, tell the, me about what the meaning of life is. What is, is the literally. meaning of life? <laughs> I, uh, it didn't come down too conclusively on that in my research. Um, but I guess there's an interesting like aside in the thesis which is very like metaphilosophical, which is about meaning and, and where you like where meaning comes from. And what I said was that in Western philosophy, meaning is transcendent. Mm-hmm. And so like I guess you can take this back to Plato where he's like, trying to find what is the form of the good, the form of the just, the form of beauty, etc. Locating these ideals in abstract rational space and then earthly, earthly reality just approximates these abstract ideals. And we're always trying to transcend our lowly existence to reach up into the stars to, you know, approximate the form of the good or whatever. Um, so it's very a priori. Whereas in Confucianism, that's just kind of a nonsense. They don't really think that way. They don't really go, well, let's logically deduce what is good and then try and find examples of it in the world. And incidentally, that's why a lot of Westerners, when they first encountered like Chinese thinking and Chinese philosophy, didn't think it was philosophy. Mm-hmm. And even today, like you go to a bookstore and these books are not in the philosophy section, they're in the religion section. It was spirituality. Yeah, exactly, they're in the spirituality section, um, which whatever you want to think about spirituality, I suppose, is less seen as less academically rigorous and by extension Chinese thought is less rigorous than Western thought on this view because they don't think in this logically deductive way. Well, some of them do, not all of them do. Um, it's not it's not common for that to be present in Chinese thought. Conversely, meaning arises sort of spontaneously. Mm. Like a good example of this I think is friendship and actually would take this example from I'm at the moment reading Roger Scruton, How to Be a Conservative because he's not how to be a conservative, um, the meaning of conservatism, his earlier book, where he talks about this and he gives a really good example, the example of friendship. Like if you were to say, well, what is the point of being friends with X person? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense because that's viewing it instrumentally. It's viewing, okay, my friendship with this person is designed to get at something else. Whereas no, the whole point of being a friend is you can just hang out with someone without a predetermined goal and it's still enjoyable, it's still meaningful. The meaning, the meaning exists within the act, within the relationship, and that's basically what Confucianism is saying, is that meaning is found within human relationships. So the whole point, like meaning, uh, like example of the father is given, um, a father fathers, a minister ministers, a son sons, right? And that just means that like, in doing these things, we become these things and they take on meaning in themselves. But what it is to be a good father, for example, we don't know beforehand because every father is different, every son is different, every daughter is different, therefore every dynamic relationship is different. 
You can't decide what it is to be a good father and then go and put it in practice. You only know that by fathering. So meaning is meaning emerges out of human relationships. Mm-hmm. And that that actually your point of you know father fathering a minister ministering just sparked a thought in my mind. Uh, I've recently started teaching. I finished my teaching degree. I'm, I've just started up as a substitute teacher, and at the school that I've been working at, I've been talking to you know some of the staff in the staff room and you can really tell the difference between the younger staff and people similar to to us in age who have started teaching within maybe within the last few years and they seem like i don't know regular mid-20s people or late 20s people whereas the older people who've been teaching for a decade or more seem like teachers they even when you're talking to them kind of just one on one outside of the classroom in the staff room whatever they have the the aura they have the demeanor of a teacher mm. so that role they that role has been assimilated into themselves yes the assimilating into oneself uh, is yeah jumping ahead a little bit but that's a great a great example um i thought you were going to go somewhere else with that because i remember you were also saying about your experience in teaching is you're at uni and you're learning all this theory, all this pedagogy of like how to instruct people. Mm. And then you're actually in the classroom and it's like, well, okay, <laughs> what <laughs> relevance does this have when someone's like standing up and like just walking out of the classroom or misbehaving? Yeah. It's kind of hard to see the relevance of like this theory to the moment. Mm. Um, and that's what I was thinking because that's in Chinese thought, there's an emphasis on practicality. There's an emphasis on just like learning by doing. Um, and that, that bleeds through into like Chinese interpretations of Marxism. Uh, it, it's about practice. There's this huge emphasis on praxis. Uh, and there's a famous, so Deng Xiaoping had a lot of famous little sayings, but one of them is you cross the river by feeling the stones. And he said this when China was liberalizing their economy. And he was sort of pushing back on this idea that we, you know, we have Marxism and then we apply it to society. He's like, no, 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 we actually, we need to start from the bottom. We cross the river by feeling the stones and if it makes sense, then we keep going. If it doesn't, well, we're not just going to say, oh, we, just, we have to do this because that's what Marxist theory says. So Chinese thinking is much more, there's a greater emphasis and respect for the symbiosis between practicality and theory, I would say. Mm-hmm. And there's a very interesting part of the thesis where you talk about this as being uh, in large part or maybe wholly a difference in the structure of how the languages work between the, you know, the Indo-European languages. So that, that informed the, well, not, not that informed, that formed the basis for communicating the Western philosophical tradition. So Greek, Latin, uh, English, French, German, so on, and Chinese, which is of a completely different language family. Mm. Um, so how, how does that difference uh, play a role? Like, how does this, the influence of those language structures influence these philosophies? Yeah, this was a really interesting thing that I came across when I was doing my research, and if I had more time, I would have gone further into it. Um, but it really delves into, like, social psychology and linguistics, so I had to sort of, like, rein myself in. But the idea is here, I mean, it was a move that was made in the philosophy of language, like, in the mid-20th century, We're moving away from viewing language as just, like, an objective way that we look at the world to actually know the way that we talk and the way that we structure sentences informs how we view the world. And so 
it's not that like words are neutral. Words convey connotations and meaning which informs how we view the world. So on that note, uh, something that Indo-European languages, of which English is one, have in common is their ability to turn anything into a noun. So, for example, any quality can become an abstract entity by adding a suffix to it. So good becomes goodness. Red becomes redness. And so, you see what I was talking about before about, like, things not existing in the abstract. Like, any, if, if you have this idea of redness, then any red thing in the world is just an example of this idea of redness. But what I'm getting at here is, well, maybe there isn't actually redness per se. We just think that there is because our language encourages us to think abstractly. It encourages us to think of things in the abstract and then try and find examples of them. Whereas conversely, um, Chinese, and I said Mandarin in my thesis, but like um, some readers commented that that's probably not, well, that just isn't accurate because Mandarin didn't exist until the 20th century. So that's an oversight on my part. Classical Chinese... Uh, is a is a is a is a relational language. It's you need to know the context to know the meaning, and you can't just turn anything into an abstract noun. Um, everything is like very much embedded in its context, and so you were asking me for examples, and I was trying to think of good examples. And I think probably the easiest point to make is like in English, we have some words that have completely different meanings, even though they sound the same, mm-hmm. but they're not that common. There aren't that many of them. Um, and when they do have different meanings, maybe it's like two or three. In Chinese, it's pr- pretty much every word or like most words will have 10 different meanings. And the only way of knowing w- which meaning you're using the word in is the broader context of the sentence or the broader context of the conversation. So it's very, very contextual. Um, and you can also reply to questions by omitting a lot of the um, a lot of the previous information. So if you asked me in Chinese, like, uh, have do you have something? Um, I could just say have. Yeah. So basically, to to know your way around Chinese, a Chinese sentence, uh, you need to have access to the broader context because um, words have so many different meanings, and it's like it's it, it's not like meanings that are closely related, like meanings that are entirely different, and you just. You can't know what's going on unless you're attentive to the broader context. Right. So there's a massive split just on the level of language uh, between the Western uh, tradition and the Chinese tradition. Yep. It's kind of an, like this opposition you've been talking about between liberalism and Confucianism of things that are sort of abstract uh, and things that are relational. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So uh, this recording studio is going to close very soon, so let's just jump right into Confucian freedom. Mm. Uh, so how does this, well, in the liberal tradition, an idea of freedom arises very naturally because if, uh, people are, if, if people's sense of selves are necessarily separate from one another, Mm. then freedom, uh, from those selves being impinged on by one another just makes sense. You know, it's just kind of hardwired into the software there, but with everyone being relational in Confucianism, how does a theory of freedom come about? Like, how does that make sense? It's a good question and one that I had to be careful with because there's always a danger in doing comparative philosophy where you basically just transpose concepts from your own tradition onto another tradition 
and in doing so fail to interpret that tradition correctly or you sort of twist its meaning because you're trying to locate something that might not actually be indigenous to that tradition. Um, so I was very conscious of that. Um, but with that being said, there were some Confucian scholars who did argue for, an int- for a theory of Confucian freedom. But the f- first point to start is what you were saying, was that, well, you can't have freedom from other people, which is a, a lot of the, of the Western view of freedom, particularly negative liberties, freedom from other people. That just makes no sense in Confucianism because you are your relationships. So if you're free from others, you, in a sense, don't exist. Um, so it's freedom within relationships. And so really, I guess, the highest good in Confucianism is living consummately in our relations, I think is, is to paraphrase Confucius. So it's about being good at social relationships. And when we're good at forming social relationships, we're at our most human. That's what we're meant to do. We're social animals, as Aristotle said. So there are some similarities, actually, between the two traditions. But freedom, then, is, I guess, when you are so good at these relationships, they become sort of effortless. Um, so the example I give is, is is an analogy between Chinese martial arts and, and freedom. You don't even have to go to Chinese martial arts, any sport, really. You'd be familiar with the idea of a flow state, right? When you're in a flow state, you're sort of doing things. Athletes experience them all the time where they sort of lose their sense of time and they just feel like they're doing things spontaneously and they have these like creative, creative outbursts. Um, what's interesting about the idea of a flow state is that it has to take place within certain constraints. So an athlete can only experience a flow state because the sport has rules. And when an athlete is at their highest level, They've internalized these rules, and these rules are no longer barriers on their ability to express themselves, but they actually help them express themselves. And so the martial art analogy is like if you look at karate or kung fu or taekwondo, they do these forms which look really contrived. And like, well, why on earth are they doing all these forms? Because they look kind of weird and unpractical. But the idea is what is at first uncomfortable to do by doing it over and over and over again, these movements become natural and at first, they are barriers on what you might want to do, but then you assimilate the movements into your own body, they become part of you, and then you express yourself through those movements. So it's like freedom within constraints, if that makes sense. Right, so Karate Kid, wax on, wax off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, he finds his freedom throughout the course of that film, right? Like, at first, it makes no sense. He's like, what the hell am I doing? But then once that movement becomes second nature to him, um, then he can start thinking about other things and he's, he becomes free through those movements. And so I say that forms are to martial arts, uh, well, rights are to morality what forms are to martial arts. So this idea in Confucianism of performing rites, of having ceremonies where like generations perform ceremonies to their ancestors, it's actually about like performing things until these like moral ideas become part of your sense of self, and then you don't have to be forced to do them. They just are part of you. You become your moral effortlessly, your moral spontaneously, and that is a sense of freedom. Why is that freedom? Um, I give the example of like, you know, Hume said reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions. So if I have some abstract idea of the good, I wake up every morning and every day is like, oh, I'm struggling against my desires to implement this like rational theory of the good. So I'm, I'm not really free because I'm still having to fight against my urges to do something else, which I might think is not moral. 
But if I practice, and I said before about the relationship between theory and practice in Chinese thought, if I practice doing what is moral over and over again, my desires and the and the idea of the good become one in the same thing. So there's no longer that tension where I'm trying to implement this rational theory of ethics. My theory of ethics is just how I act because I've done it so many times. I, and that's Confucian freedom. Mm-hmm. So this, like you alluded to, this has, it sounds like it has quite a bit of in common with like Aristotelian virtue ethics. Um, what, what's the sort of major difference between the two, would you say? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I might have to take that on notice, <laughs> but I'd probably say like one of the main differences that springs to mind is again, like virtue in the Aristotelian sense. And I'm like, I'm not, I've not read the ethics, so I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this, but it's still kind of abstract. Mm-hmm. Like what is it to be just? Right. What is it to be good? You know, it's, they're still kind of like rational deliberations. Yeah, like Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics kind of provides a list, like a sort of table of different um, ethics and vices and deficiencies and so on. And it, it's sort of like this predetermined abstract list of things mm. where it's like, okay, well, there's the virtue of bravery and a lack of it is cowardice and an excess of it is foolhardiness. Uh, so we've already figured out beforehand what the kind of framework for understanding all of this is. You just need to go and practice it. Yeah. yeah well, there you go. That's a great example. Um, although this idea that like virtue is found in moderation actually does somewhat exist in Confucianism. There's a famous saying in the Analects where this student asked Confucius for some advice and he tells him something. And then the same student overhears another student asking the same question and Confucius gives him the opposite advice. And this initial student comes up to him and says, well, I asked you this question and you told me to do this. But then this other student asked you the same question and he taught him to do something else. Like what, what gives? And Confucius basically says, well, your two personalities are so different. Like he's really energetic. So I tried to wind him back in. Whereas you're very shy. So I, I encourage you to, you know, be more active. It's everyone is different. And what is virtuous for one person might not be virtuous for the other person. Mm. So it's still in a sense a virtue ethic, but instead of being a sort of abstract one, as we'd find in Aristotle, it's a relational one, like we've been indicating toward for Confucianism. Yeah, absolutely. You'd have to pay much more close attention to the local specifics, Mm. the the particulars of who you're talking about and when and where. Right. Um, So how does this cultivation of you know confucian virtues scale out so confucianism is you know it doesn't take the individual as the basic social unit yet these yeah it feels like the cultivation of these virtues happens on an individual level but it doesn't seem like that would be the end where does it go from there yeah, I'd say, like, from a public policy perspective, it's it's not about, like, encouraging individuals to do the right things, which is what we do here in the West. It's more about creating the environments where individuals can do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And But, again, you have to be sensitive to the context. So I guess to, like, broaden this out to the realm of politics and international politics is what is good for a certain country to do uh cannot be abstractly determined. It has to be very, very sensitive to their history, their culture, their language, 
um, their current institutional setting. You can't just come down on high and go, well, you must become a liberal democracy. As much as I think liberal democracies are like the best of the, like the least worst, um, you can't just like go down to one other country and force it upon them. You have to really be attentive to the local specificities. Right. And, and see Iraq and Afghanistan. Exactly. See Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, see pretty much anywhere outside the West that tried to like wholesale adopt um, liberalism. And as I'd argue, that's not really that surprising because liberalism, when you unpack it, um, is really just bound up with a lot of ways of viewing the world that are quite odd um, if you're not a Westerner. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a very good way to uh, cap it off there. And there's just a great quote from the end of the thesis uh, authored by yourself that I would like to read out here. Uh, I thought you did a very good job writing this and it just kind of succinctly summarizes a lot of stuff that we've been talking about here. There is nothing over and above our actions or relationships. They are ends in themselves. We do not need some transcendent lodestar to orient the course of our moral lives. Instead of looking upwards or inwards, we should look sideways to each other. Well, there you go. I'm not going to disagree with whoever said that. They sound very wise. (laughs) All right. Thank you for listening through to that episode. Um, If you have any suggestions for what we should do uh, for another episode, uh, this is to you, the listener, by the way, um, please let us know. Uh, we're uh, we still thinking of doing the Prince by Machiavelli. Mm, yeah, I, I do want to do the Prince. You cool with that? Okay, so we'll, we'll most likely be doing the Prince next, and it's it's pretty short, so um, we can try to get that out sooner than this one came out. Stay tuned. Thanks, guys. <laughs>